0: I'm Cody Comers, and this is Against Habit. Anxiety. It is the only emotion my body believes is truly necessary for me to experience at 3 o'clock in the morning. To be sure, I'd rather be sleeping. And usually, how I respond to this experience is by listening to audiobooks or podcasts until I fall back asleep. I may get through more audiobooks that way, but it's hard for me to look at that and imagine anxiety as anything other than a burden. But I've recently been rethinking that relationship with anxiety. And in particular, one book has helped me start to change some of my beliefs about how anxiety works and what a healthy relationship to it might look like. That book is called Future Tense by my guest today, Tracy Dennis Tiwari. Tracy is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Hunter College, where she directs the emotion regulation lab. She's spent the last couple decades as a psychologist studying anxiety, particularly in clinical populations and children. In her book, Tracy argues that though anxiety is unpleasant, It actually plays a crucial role in our daily lives. What exactly is the benefit of anxiety? Well, here's how I'd put it. The majority of our emotional lives is concerned with the present moment. Our brains are designed to get what we want right now, not to delay gratification until some unknown future date. The tension here is that while our emotions tend to orient us toward the moment, So much of our our progress as individuals, as a civilization, depends on doing hard work now so our future selves, or generations, can enjoy its benefits. Anxiety is the emotional bridge between our present selves and our future outcomes. It is the emotion that makes us care about what rewards or punishments we'll receive in the future and motivates us to take action now in order to put ourselves in the best position for success later on. Without that emotional bridge, it's a lot easier to disregard what's going to happen in the future. Anxiety is the only part of our present selves that has a true emotional investment in how our future selves will feel. With this in mind, the appropriate relationship to have with anxiety is not to eliminate it, but to channel it. Anxiety can be incredibly motivating, and at a certain level, it's healthy. Throughout this conversation, we talk about the give and take of anxiety But we also talk about how this fits into a larger conversation about how we're so often taught in modern life that what we should do is eliminate bad things. We should take the presence of bad things as a negative signal. We should be able to remove inefficiency, unhappiness, and all sorts of negative outcomes and emotions from our lives. But this is based on a false model, an inaccurate story about how life works and what it means to be human. This is the story of anxiety that we cover in this conversation. Engaging with it and not running from it is part of the larger story of what Tracy called the hard work of being human. Tracy's book is Future Tense, Why Anxiety is Good for You Even Though It Feels Bad. It is out now. If you enjoy this episode, you can subscribe to my Substack newsletter at againsthabit.com or leave a five-star review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Here is Tracy Dennis Tawari. Can you tell me the story of what happened to you on September 11th, 2001? <laughs> right.
1: Yes. Well, a lot of things happened on uh, September 11th, 2001, um, of course. And being a New Yorker, you know, we all, uh, every I think, person on the planet remembers that day. But in addition um, to that. Terrible day. I was actually defending my dissertation. Um, it was um, a bit of a shocker because right before we went into the nine a.m. dissertation defense, we had heard the news on the radio. Now I was in Pennsylvania, so I was not back home in in Manhattan, um, and we had not yet heard the towers had fallen, and we had to make a decision: uh, do we do this? And you know, my academic advisors at the time, we decided that this, you know, we can get through this. Um, let's, let's not uh, be derailed on this important benchmark. So, you know, but, but I successfully defended, but, but for me, the, the story that really started on, on that day was, um, you know, my stance towards my career in psychology. I have a degree in clinical psychology and I later uh, retrained in neuroscience. My stance changed because I think of the the moment that I entered the world as a professional It was very clear that mental health was more important than ever. Um, Living in uh, Manhattan at the time and sort of experiencing myself um, being part of that collective trauma we experienced, as well as I think my own unique uh, experiences at the time, uh, brought, you know, it made it less abstract. I certainly didn't feel like we have to help those other people. (laughs) I was part of this, you know this new community of people that needed extra attention and help uh, with our mental health. So I just devoted myself to this endeavor of, okay, I'm a, I decided to be a scientist, even though I'm a clinical psychologist, Uh, I'm not going to have a practice. That's not what I do, but I'm going to put my head down and just do the science. I'm going to focus on anxiety and emotional health, which was my training and my interest area. Um, And, and that's what I did for 20 years. I, I studied Uh, emotion regulation, which is actually the, my lab is called the emotion regulation lab. So this ability we we have to, uh, you know, work with the experience and expression of our emotions to increase them, decrease them, be flexible, all of these dynamic aspects of being emotional uh, in healthy and unhealthy ways. I studied that and I focused in pretty early in on anxiety disorders as well, because they are the most common clinical diagnosis. Um, They are clearly, you know, I think we can all see over the past decade or so that it seems to be the emotional crisis of our era. I think when we look at distress and overwhelm and things that we're experiencing in the world, the the word we put on it is anxiety. So, you know, I really did a lot of work in understanding what causes anxiety disorders. How do we prevent them? How do we treat them? I'm um, also a developmentalist, especially in my early training, and so I really wanted to understand the implication of this for young people, and how we can uh, protect kids, uh, build resilience. Uh, so I, you know, did this work, and just about I would say just five or six years ago, I finally kind of lifted my head up <laughs> and looked around and said, "Okay, I've been doing this work. I, I, I even founded a digital therapeutics company to lower barriers to accessing clinically validated mental health treatments." We, you know, and I, you know, I really thought, "Okay, we we must have done some good work here," and. Uh, to the contrary, it seemed as if anxiety disorders were more common than ever before. And that's what some of the statistics suggest. Certainly, it feels as if uh, many of us are struggling and don't have the resources to cope with a lot of what the world's throwing our way. We're worried about our kids. You know, we know, uh, many of us know that the Surgeon General, uh, Dr. Vivek Murthy, recently actually called. Uh, teen and child mental health the the public health crisis that we're facing now. So I feel that we'd failed, um, frankly, that I had failed as a mental health professional. And that was really the spirit in which I wrote the book (laughs) to really try to look at this mystery. We have amazing science. I've been part of that. We do have amazing treatments. We have cognitive behavioral therapies. We have science-based wellness practices. We We have so many things. Uh, that can help and support us. but yet we it seems that our mental health is worse than ever before. So my book was really uh, trying to address that mystery.
0: So your book is Future Tense. And um, a key part of the argument that you're making is that we get the story wrong about anxiety, that actually we fundamentally misunderstand that. So, by way of getting into making that argument, can you sort of walk me through, how you went from that general observation about the world of, okay, uh, there's clearly a disconnect between what we're studying and, and the sort of outcomes we'd like to see in society generally, and going from that general observation to, I specifically think that we've got the story wrong on anxiety, and that's what I want to address in this this bigger work here.
1: I I chose anxiety as my topic in part because it was my expertise, but but I think really because it did f- seem that this was the crisis of the moment. Now I'm a Gen Xer, and when I grew up uh, in the '80s, you know, '70s and '80s, uh, we um, we had a lot of distress too back then. <laughs> we had a lot of experiences, but we the the label we put on it was stress. So anytime there was something burdening us, even if it was something good and exciting, you know, planning for a wedding, how are you doing? Oh, I'm stressed, but it's okay. And you, you know, today though that word that we put on uh, to, everything to describe our challenges is anxiety. So that was the first hint to me that there was something unique about anxiety. And then the second thing is, someone who studies anxiety, um, what I've realized is, if you if you look around and and see what our treatments for anxiety are, the gold standard treatments, many of them are cognitive behavioral therapies. And what you do if you have an anxiety disorder or um, a trauma-related disorder or obsessive-compulsive-related disorder, all of those used to be on the, under the umbrella of anxiety disorder. And then after DSM-5, our, our diagnostic manual, they, they, we partitioned them out a little. But the treatment for many of them is the same. It's called exposure and response prevention. And what you do is you uh, teach people who've been chronically avoiding uh, their anxiety-provoking uh, experiences. And that's really a hallmark of most anxiety disorders. So people who are avoiding those experiences and can no longer cope, you teach them to expose themselves to their feelings, their stressors. Um, if they're phobic, you know, say you are you have a snake phobia, you gradually learn to expose yourself to snakes. If you're fear, fearful of flying, the same goes there. If you um, have chronic worry, you start to uh, actually learn to... Um, kind of be with the things that you're worrying about rather than spiral off into all these other ways of coping. So exposure is the very first step, just being with and accepting these difficult emotions. And once you've exposed yourself and started to learn to be with them, then you learn different ways of coping, ways that are not about avoidance. And that's where the response prevention comes in, because the response that you're preventing in these techniques is avoidance and suppression and escape. So rather than, um, and you can see this um, very clearly in the nature of of OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. So uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, the obsessions you have, maybe it's an obsession with cleanliness. Um, You're afraid of all sorts of um, infection, for example. Um, That obsession causes you anxiety. And the compulsion, which is some act that you do, some ritualistic act, um, something to pro- you feel might protect yourself, maybe it's washing your hands 100 times a day, whatever it is, that act, that compulsion, actually serves to avoid the feeling of anxiety you get because of your obsession. And it works for a brief moment, but then the anxiety comes, you know, raging back at you because it doesn't really work. So what you do when you treat OCD, much like when you treat other anxiety disorders, is that you help people be with the thing that's causing them anxiety and stop the avoidance. So, okay. So here I, I've, I've learned and taught this for 20 years. And then you look at how we in the world are communicating with people about anxiety and what are we telling them? We're telling them that all experiences of anxiety um, are, are worrisome. They're at the least uh, potentially dangerous and at the, and, and actually probably more likely what we're saying is that it's a disease Or sort of when you really have intense feelings of anxiety, you might be on the road to an anxiety disorder. So what do you do when something is a disease, um, a danger, or a malfunction? You avoid it, you fix it, you eradicate it. So we know that the treatment for these problematic experiences of anxiety, anxiety disorders, is to stop (laughs) avoiding, is to actually stop um, reviling and fearing these, uh, these anxious feelings and starting to work with them. Yet we're constantly telling people that anxiety is a malfunction. It's dangerous. It's a potential disease. And that, that is what we need to fix before anything else can work.
0: One of the reasons I'm really drawn to your argument here is that, I guess, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot in my own life is the, uh, what it means to have the presence of bad things and whether or not to take them as a negative signal. So what I mean is that most of us, the way if we have something in our lives that, you know, we find aversive that we're, you know, that we don't like, we, we say, okay, well um, I want to do something to change that. I want to do something that's, that's, that's going to eliminate that And the more, the further I get into adulthood and just life and all of these things, it's like, you know, I'm not sure that we can play the elimination game for all bad things. And if that is the game we're trying to play, it's some fundamental discord with the way reality actually works. And anxiety is one of those things that by virtue of trying to eliminate it, you are acting against the nature of, of how it works and therefore um the way to um to deal with it is more to to channel it um to to use it for something to to manage its presence rather than to try to seek uh its its absence right
1: beautifully put uh I agree it's the nature of anxiety <laughs> to be unpleasant it can't work unless it's unpleasant, and it makes us sit up and pay attention. But between psychology, psychiatry, uh, the self-help world, we have come to believe that that emotional, mental health, that well-being is the absence of discomfort. And that is the fundamental mistake that we've made because there's no such thing as you say i mean it, life just doesn't work that way it's a it's a loser's game to try to say unless i get rid of all discomfort unless i'm happy all the time i'm going to fail as a human being it's really this you know i sort of talk about this as sometimes as a as this toxic standard of positivity but i really mean that word toxic in that way because when we hold ourselves to this standard it makes it you know, it, it primes us to do all the wrong things. It primes us to be afraid of those unpleasant feelings. It primes us to, which means we can't master them as easily. It primes us to avoid those unpleasant feelings, which means that they will almost always tend to spiral out of, con- you know, more out of control if you know, you're feeling that way because it's an opportunity cost because what you don't, you know, own <laughs> and work with, it starts to own you. You just don't get, it's a skill-based, right? It's just learning the skills of working through difficult things. And so, yes, I think, so again, this is the primacy of this sort of mindset that if we can just say for a second, you know, being human is kind of messy. Um, being happy all the time is actually not a standard anyone should aspire to. And and really flexibility and um and connection and other things should be the goals that we aspire aspire to. If we start to shift into that mode a little bit more, I just think we'll all do better, feel better, and 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 it's just we'll we'll start to do more helpful things when it comes to our mental health.
0: Yeah, and, and so that's definitely I think weaving it into this larger story that we're kind of being sold in our society about uh the, the possibility of eliminating unhappiness and discomfort and things like anxiety. And uh, so there's not only reason to be suspicious of that, of that narrative, which I think kind of what we're touching on there, but there's actually significant reasons, not only just like, okay, so you have to live with anxiety, figure it out, but it's actually, no, there's, there's, there's really something here that's, that's constructive about this feeling and, uh, anxiety can be a, a positive force. So can you play out in, in your words and the way you think about that, w- what that means to you?
1: It is much more, um, than we ever have given it credit for anxiety that is, because I think at the most that we talk about it as being potentially, uh, constructive or productive, we think it's, well, it protects us, you know, it's, it's this sort of, it's like fear it's fight or flight. And, um, and so, you know, it can be handy sometimes. But but then the and then the the argument goes on, but you know, because this is sort of caveman feelings or cave person feelings, when we had to survive saber-tooth tigers all the time uh, you know, and we would s- jump at every crackling twig to protect ourselves. It's sort of—it's uh, not really a helpful modern emotion anymore. And if anything, we are on constant alert and vigilance now because the world is full of, you know, crackling twigs. And so, really, it kind of is helpful, but we have to control it. We have to—we um, as soon as we feel it, we have to manage anxiety. We have to—we have to make it civilized. <laughs> so, so that's the—that's sort of as far as the narrative has gone. But I am trying to make an argument that. The benefits of anxiety go well beyond the three Fs, fear, fight, and flight. Anxiety is productive in the sense that hope is productive, in the sense that striving is productive. And that's because, and this really gets into how anxiety and fear are different. And it also takes as a starting assumption that anxiety, like all of our emotions, is an evolved uh, advantage, and you know this is not a new um, idea. You know, Darwin, the third book in his trilogy on his evolutionary theory was the expression of emotion in man and animals. So, you know, so I'm not you know making this up. And and actually, all of functional emotion theory, which is one of the predominant emotion theories in psychology, really argues uh, that yes, emotions aren't always. Helpful in the moment, but they evolved to give us uh, certain advantages of information and action readiness. And so, but but let me take a, a step back to uh, really make drawing the distinction between fear and anxiety. So, fear is the appraisal that there's danger right now in the moment, in the present moment, and it's certain. It is someone running up to you with a knife. Drawn, right, or a snake about to bite you, and so um, fear. Well, thank goodness fear is there because then it activates you very quickly, and, um, and really you don't need any conscious awareness to react. Um, it primes you to fight or take flight, and it recruits all sorts of biology, and memories, and cog- you know cognitions, and it and it and it makes us into uh, an efficient machine to deal with the threat um, at hand. Now, it can get out of control sometimes, but but it has the stuff to protect us in the moment. Anxiety in that sense is nothing like fear because anxiety is not about the present moment. It's about the uncertain future. So anxiety is nervous apprehension about the uncertain future, which means um, the future, because it's uncertain, could be dangerous. There could be a threat uh, around the bend. So say you're waiting to get back medical tests from your doctor. So it is a possibility that you have cancer. But anxiety is also the uh, awareness that you might not have cancer or you might not have something, you know, if we go out of the medical realm and maybe it's that you have a big job interview coming up, you know, it's the understanding that you could really bomb at this job interview. That's that's the that you're holding in your mind the, the potential for, for danger or threat or something bad. But you could also crush it and you really care about this job interview. You want this job. Anxiety is the emotion that tracks the discrepancy between where you are now and where you want to be in this uncertain future. And so that appraisal of of that potential future, it it leverages one of the triumphs of human evolution, really uh, the ability to simulate the future and think in exquisite detail about the future, where you can hold in mind at the same time a potential negative outcome, but also a potential positive outcome. And and because that's the information it's giving you of, of uncertainty, the action readiness it prepares you for is to avert disaster and make your dreams come true. So it not only recruits your fight-flight responses, which it does, which, you know, this, this sort of threat detection and response system, but it also recruits your reward system when your anxious dopamine increases in your brain. It also recruits your social bonding systems. It actually, um, when you're anxious oxytocin, the social bonding hormone, Increases, Which actually not only is released and increases when we're in, uh, say, a, a mother-child uh, interaction or a romantic interaction, it actually primes you to seek social connection. And social connection is one of the best ways to actually regulate and manage and work with um, an anxious feeling. So it also primes you to be more creative and persistent. There's fascinating research showing that when you're in not a full-blown panic or having an anxiety disorder, but rather when you have elevated anxiety, it actually primes you to persist in a problem-solving task, um, to not give up when it would be easy to give up. And it also um, primes you to think more outside of the box and to come up with different solutions. So these are just three small examples of the ways that you know anxiety isn't just protective. It does these amazing positive things for us so that we're better able to work towards and strive towards the goals uh, that we want to achieve.
0: I want to take a shot at summarizing some of what you said there in the terms that kind of, you know, make, make the most sense to me and, and see if you feel that it's a fair representation of, of your main points. Um, so I guess the way that I would summarize that in a single sentence is that anxiety is the emotional bridge between our current selves and our future outcomes, and I guess what I mean by that is that most of our cognitive infrastructure is specifically designed for us living in the moment to get what we want now, rather than some sort of delayed gratification to some unknown point in the future. Um, in decision making literature, which I guess is is closer to what I'm what I'm studying, this would be temporal discounting. Uh, you know, a reward or now is, is worth more than a reward that's received later in the future. And this is kind of what you're saying about fear versus anxiety is fear is very much concerned with well, what is going to happen to us now? What are the outcomes that are immediately present? And anxiety puts us in relationship with, um, you know, temporally distal outcomes. And so this, uh, this is important because the majority of our systems for cognitive emotional processing are about, uh, you know, this focus on the present. Uh, but we, as humans, that this is like this is what we can do. We can imagine the future. We can simulate the future. We can care about the future. Um, and so, what this means is that for most decisions and for most of the way our, our mind is structured. It's really easy for us to get worked up about what's happening right now, but it's actually pretty difficult for us to get worked up about what's going to happen in the future enough to like really make our current selves do something about it. And anxiety is the ex- exception. So what anxiety does that's so important and so unique is that it makes us care about what's going to happen later on. And it gives us that emotional investment in the reward landscape of the, the future. And in some ways, anxiety is the only part of our present selves that has a true emotional investment in how our future selves will feel.
1: I love that. And I love anchoring that in decision-making theory because I think it clarifies yet another reason that anxiety is so uniquely and powerfully, or it's so uniquely human in many ways and is so much uh, a tool in our toolkit. Because, you know, in many ways, for the reason you, you just articulated so well, I think we'd still be living in caves if it weren't for anxiety, <laughs> because as you say, it, you know, in terms of temporal discounting, it helps us break through that very, you know, reasonable tendency um, to, to focus on the present. Now, I think that we have additional emotions in addition to anxiety that help us care about the future. I think hope is one of them. You know, I think curiosity, um, which is present oriented, but can also be future oriented. I think we have a whole array of emotions that help us. But here's the thing about anxiety. It's the one that refuses to be ignored <laughs> because it's so unpleasant that we have to sit up and pay attention to it, which is why we immediately trying to suppress and soothe and discount it and deny it. It does such a disservice to ourselves because again i really love how you frame this as something that allows us to really care about the future in ways in in ways that you know so many things are working against us in caring about the future anxiety's un- uncomfortableness is is a, is a necessary component of that yeah but i think i mean i just think that's i'm i'm i've this is why i love having conversations with academics because I think you're really, um, I hadn't thought about, because I'm not a decision-making theorist, I'm an emotion scientist, so I hadn't really remembered how heavily this notion of temporal discounting is, is weighed. And I remember 20 years ago, I mean, when I was being, when I was in your stage as a graduate student, I remember how cognitive theories always treated emotion as sort of this little box, you know, you see the models with the boxes and arrows and emotion would sort of be, especially the neuroscientists, emotion would sort of be this little box on the outside sort of tweaking the system as maybe, maybe a moderator <laughs> or a little, or almost like just a source of noise. That would be emotion. You know what I mean? And all the beautiful, perfect cognitive things would be happening and, it'd be, you know, and, I, <laughs> and, and so I think that kind of integrating this cognitive, really a a true cognitive perspective, but realizing how you cannot separate out these emotional factors is really a fascinating um, thing to consider.
0: I think it's difficult to like overestimate just how important that connection is of, you know, exactly the interplay between emotions and cognitions in this case, and, and just how powerful anxiety is in that context. And it's like, oh, well, that is the thing that makes present me care about my future outcomes. It's like, oh yeah, that actually, that's super important. Of course, anxiety.
1: (laughs) But uh, I mean, people won Nobel Prizes because they decided that maybe people weren't totally rational all the time.
0: (laughs) You know, and uh, I think another way of illustrating this is that you compare anxiety with fear. And it has this similar dynamic as well as fear is concerned with the moment, anxiety is concerned with the future. Uh, But I also think it's important to contrast anxiety with contentedness. And so both fear and anxiety are fundamentally motivating emotions. They spur you into action. And contentedness is the opposite, right? If you're content, then sitting there and reveling in your contentedness sounds pretty dang good. And, uh, you know, but, uh, one of the hallmarks of anxiety is that it it spurs you into action. And so, uh, that, that's, that is, there's this crucial link between, like you said, you know, we'd be living in caves still if we, if we didn't have this emotion potentially, right? Because it is the thing that not only makes us care about what's going to happen in the future, but it's like, oh, Shit, I should like sit up and do something about it now in order to obtain that future outcome (laughs) that I want. Otherwise, I'm not going to get it. And the reason that you have that insight and that like it actually means something to you and that you do something based off of it right now is because of that.
1: You're only anxious when you care. And for me, this insight comes from an intellectual perspective. It actually also comes from a personal perspective because when I was, so if it, you know, a lot of us, it's me search research, right. When it comes to, (laughs) when it comes to, if you find someone for whom that's not the
0: case, uh, (laughs) direct them my way and I'll have them on the show.
1: Right? (laughs) Seriously. Um, but the interesting thing for me is I think the me search for a part of my research is just the emotional aspect of it because emotions, I've always been a very emotional person, struggle with different emotions. The emotion, Um, that I have not struggled with as much is anxiety, actually. What I have struggled with is depression. And I know it very intimately. I I suffered from uh, a major depressive disorder when I was a teenager. And I I don't suffer from that now, but, you know, it's always a vulnerability. So one is aware of one's vulnerabilities, that when life throws you too many curveballs, when your ability to cope feels like it's being exceeded, you know, we all have those vulnerabilities that come out. So, so it's depression for me. Here's the thing about depression. You don't, you cease to care. You cease to believe that change is possible. The despair is the painful part of it. The loss, depression, like sadness, is this reaction to loss. And you can be a person who actually, and I am an extremely reward-focused person in the sense that I strive towards things. I believe I can affect change. And so a lot of people who end up being depressed still have intact this sort of joie de vivre and they have joy in things. And I'm very high joy and high positive affect as well. But at that point in my life, there were too many incursions on that. And I I felt that I could no longer affect change. And anyway, I'm not going to do a psychoanalysis of myself, but but all that to say, the thing that was so difficult about depression is is not the same as what's difficult about really debilitating anxiety or an anxiety disorder. Because I was no longer in it to win it when I was depressed. When you're anxious, you believe you can still do things in the world. Worry is the belief that you can still control the future, right? Uh, you think that you can do things by worrying. You care about the world around you. So it's extremely painful. And I, I want to draw a distinction in a moment with anxiety disorders and anxiety, which we haven't done yet. But But there's that different phenomenology to this painful emotion, anxiety, compared to something like depression.
0: I I feel like I am pretty sensitive to the distinction that you outlined there because I certainly identify in myself manic depressive tendencies. I'm not a clinical psychologist, um, and you know, so I, I I don't have any particular reason to suspect that it's uh, a, a full clinical problem. But certainly, there's no doubt that the tendencies are there, and that is exactly the defining characteristic of that swing, of basically it goes from. Uh, everything matters to nothing matters. And that is the like sort of fundamental experiential component of that back and forth. And so this is a really, this, yeah, it's, it's a very meaningful dimension uh, for for me personally as well.
1: And I feel that that distinction has been really important to me because it helps me understand how there have been times in my life where I actually used anxiety or, or something along that spectrum to activate when I needed to activate, to care when I needed to care. And this is where our, and this is where sort of the, the the fundamental goal of my book, which is a mindset shift about anxiety, but honestly all difficult emotions. Like I think I need to write five or six more books and like try to rescue all the difficult emotions. You know what I mean? Because it's about the, it's about this, 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 uh, you know, this t- sort of tyranny of constant happiness, right? We, I think instead we have to say, Hey, Life is uncomfortable and it's through the discomfort that often some of the best things happen. I mean, nothing, good, nothing great ever happened in the comfort zone. Do you know what I mean? And so I think of these difficult emotions, um, I think of them as almost, there's a technology of consciousness here. Um, and, I, and and really this comes from a long history I have as a meditator. I, uh, when I was 17 or 18, I was introduced to Hinduism and I started studying it very deeply. And in many levels, I feel like it, it saved me from lots of not so great choices in my life. And, and I, you know, and, be, and, and the reason I think that is because I realized that my experiences, I could I could engage with my difficult experiences and that there was an opportunity for transformation, not destruction, not eradicating. But the thing about Hinduism, Buddhism, some of these Eastern traditions, I think many spiritual traditions, even beyond the few I mentioned. Is one that there's an idea that we transform the difficult into something potentially powerful. And so, and then I became, and I at the time I was actually a classical musician. I was an oboist of all things, <laughs> which is another whole side story about how I switched from classical music and being at a conservatory at the Eastman School of Music to um to becoming a psychologist. But 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 once I was uh, studying psychology, I felt that my being drawn to emotions. And to emotion regulation, this notion that we can work with our emotions and that the key was not making them go away, but being flexible. I think that is a, a sort of a wisdom that is central to philosophies, to spiritual traditions and to the science of of mental health that we lose in this in this rigid, tyrannical pursuit of constant happiness, that it's about. Flexibility—it's about you know a, a wave in which sometimes you're succeeding and sometimes you're quote unquote failing. You know, it's a growth mindset about emotions. It's all of these things. I use that wave metaphor. Um, I've used it in a few places. I kind of love it. I'm going to keep saying it until someone tells me to to shut up about it. But you know, emotions like anxiety are a wave, and yes, you can drown in them but they are energy and they push you forward. And so we can also learn to swim. We can also learn to surf them. And I think that's the key idea that I want to discuss with people. I want to ask people to consider when it comes to anxiety, especially. This feels really
0: in sympathy with what I was trying to express earlier on in our conversation with this basic idea that there's some kind of you know noise constant in life where it's like there is there is always going to be that level of discomfort unhappiness suboptimality whatever you're looking at at the moment and it becomes about learning a, how, how to deal with that, but, but B, also how it connects to the larger human experience and, and meaning, right? Because it's not just about like, oh, I always want to feel good in this very immediate kind of self-serving way all the time. But it's like, no, I'm creating this larger connection between me and the rest of humanity. I think that that's um, a pr- deeper appreciation of, of suffering and suboptimality and everything in between can be a part of that. But, um, but yes, but have, it, but, but acknowledging that there's this, um, it, 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 there's always going to be some f- version of that and saying, I am going to, to lean into that and build with that in mind and not try and, um, push against that in a way that's really going to put me at discord with reality.
1: That's, that's right. I love how you put that because it is reality, but yet we've. You know, I don't think this is a new trend, but I think it's an accelerated trend to feel, as you say, you know, kind of, we have to accept the suboptimal. Well, who says that humans have to be optimal? (laughs) I mean, right? And I think that a lot of that is, you know, I I am very hesitant to ever lay the blame for for mental health problems or or, uh, kind of um, suffering at the foot of any one cause. And I'm not doing that now. However... I think that the role that digital technology has played in certain aspects of our life, and it's not just the, you know, we have to consider them. And it's not just the black and white, oh, when young people get on social media, it makes them feel crappy about themselves. It's really so much deeper than that. And one of the things that what you were saying reminds me of is this, um, you know, this idea that everything has to be efficient? You know, we've sort of bought into this cult of efficiency, whether it's Amazon and getting everything immediately, or you know, having uh, sort of almost this sort of uh, technocratic. You know, all of our technocratic overlords are sort of all, all sort of, you know, either you know quantified selfers or they're like you know qu- you know optimizers or they're you know, and so we we're sort of falling into this way of thinking about what it means to be human that really has very little to do with the hard work of being human. And I think that is, is one of the fundamental problems so that we no longer feel funny. I was talking to someone the other day about the book and and just, you know, what I was going for here with reconceptualizing and reclaiming anxiety as a part of being human. And she said, Oh, I, I love this. She said, it was so beautiful. She said, you know, I actually felt kind of proud, my anxiety. I actually started feeling more curious and even proud of it. And that, to me, is the stance that allows us to understand that that our emotions are not fragile. They're anti-fragile. And it's this whole area of research and concept. And of course, that's the the concept that uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb coined in his book, Anti-Fragility, about, oh gosh, 10, 12, 15 years ago now. This idea that we get, there are systems, most most notably the human system, but also you know, political systems and social systems that gain from disorder. And you know, the easiest analogy here is um, the immune system. That you know that the immune system is not fragile. It's not like a china teacup that if you drop it, it shatters into a million pieces and never can be put back together. It's anti fragile because unless it's exposed to germs, to to bacteria and, and to viruses it will not learn to mount an immune response. Um, and a lot of uh, autoimmune problems we see now, we wonder if people have not actually just been exposed to the correct or optimal range of, of different types of, you know, uh, pathogens and, and different kinds of things. And so, and our emotions are like that too. If we are not exposed to difficult emotional experiences, if they're all taken away from us, if they're all suppressed or, uh, or, or prevented or avoided, we will not gain the skills to actually mount an emotion regulation response, uh, to keep with the analogy.
0: It's funny that you mentioned Taleb, and one of the things that immediately comes to mind when you say that is that one of the concepts that he relies on in that and his other work is this notion of iatrogenics. Originally from medicine, the basic idea that um, introducing a solution doing something that you hope will help can actually hurt your system, your your body, whatever it is, more than just doing nothing. And I think that there's a connection we made between that and one of the things you're saying about anxiety, which is that in our desire and willingness to pathologize it and to say, this is an issue that needs to be cured. I'm going to do something to try and fix this problem. We can actually make it much worse. And one of the things that I I think um, is worth drawing out in, in, in some of the stuff that you talk about and connecting that with what I was talking about with decision science stuff is that um, if you try to eliminate the the presence of anxiety, you don't eliminate the bad feeling, which is the part of it that is motivating you to do something that is going to change your future outcomes. Uh, uh, and so that motivational impulse is is still there. And this is the thing that that, that keeps it going, that you uh, – it, it, it's maladaptive and kind of introduces its own pathology because you are building that motivational force uh, and and doing something about it without actually bringing down the 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 level of of anxiety, right? Um, but yeah, i think I think that's kind of in line with a number of things that that we've been talking about right that
1: that's so interesting. I, I I hadn't quite thought of it that way. this idea that if we're trying to remove, you you know, we're doing something to remove anxiety in almost this artificial way, as you said, this sort of iatrogenic way by, uh, by introducing a solution rather than allowing the system, whatever, you know, uh, and maybe the system is a human being in this case, or your emotional, whatever we think of as a system to come up with a solution that you're, you're sort of, uh, you're sort of, um, decommissioning the emotion or, or you're parsing it in ways like you're taking out pieces of it. Like if you have a mechanism, right. And you're, and you're saying, well, it's a mechanism that works in perfect balance. Like it's a, you know, it's a watch. It's, you know, whatever. I don't want to, I don't always like mechanistic uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, machine uh, metaphors for, for the human being, but, but, but in this case, it's as if you're taking out one of the, the cogs or you're, 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 you're putting, or with your idea, it's actually more that you've inserted something into this beautifully balanced watch mechanism that needs a little fine tuning. And instead you're putting a whole new gear in there. (laughs) Right. And it can't, you know, I'm not, I don't think this is quite the, the, the right uh, metaphor on all levels, but I think what you're saying is very interesting because we're taking away some of the helpful parts of anxiety and perhaps keeping the more unhelpful parts of it because the motivational part has been sapped of its energy.
0: I, I want to introduce another kind of idea here. And this was something that, that came to my mind while I was reading the book. And it's a line from Michael Pollan's recent book, This Is Your Mind on Plants, particularly from the, the section on caffeine. And he said, and this is paraphrasing, that for most of us our familiar everyday experience of consciousness in modern life is in many ways caffeinated consciousness. And it's really easy to to miss this fact that there is, if you consume caffeine, and the vast majority of people on the planet do, that is coloring your conscious experience on a daily basis, even if it's in small doses. And we can only really notice how different sort of baseline non-caffeinated consciousness is when we go into a detox period. And I think a really similar principle is at play with anxiety. So modern life carries with it this kind of baseline level of anxiety, mostly because everything we do is so future-oriented. We need to find the right partner. We need to get the right job. We need to make the right investments. We need to put our kids in the right schools. And so our everything we're doing now is so that our future selves can enjoy the benefits of the decisions made by our current selves. And the key sort of emotional architecture supporting this is, um, is as you know, in, in, this, in the sense that it's this bridge between our current selves, and our future outcomes is anxiety. And so we have this baseline level of anxiety that is intrinsic in a way fundamental to modern life. And, uh, it's just sort of ever present and that observation can be hard to miss be- or har- hard to, hard to see, because it becomes, you know, the fish, the fish and water, right? It's just always all around us. and we can notice the the deviations from the tonic lo- uh, you know, level of of anxiety. um but but it is it is always there in a certain way.
1: That's very interesting. I, I think one reason that anxiety, this is sort of the new age of anxiety. And of course, that the last age of anxiety was post World War II, and that's when Aubin wrote the poem entitled Age of Anxiety. So we have this kind of phrase now, and now we're in an age of anxiety, as you say, perhaps because this modern era requires us to be more future oriented than ever. There's a lot of complexity and there's a lot of uncertainty, right? And especially, and listen, all of this was happening before the pandemic, but certainly the pandemic has ratcheted up those trends. So So this is interesting. So, yet we've become less tolerant of anxiety. Is it because, I mean, it seems like you're almost, I think what your idea suggests is, is it that our baseline levels have risen because of these forces to a more perceptible level than in past generations. And so it's just more unpleasant for us. And then we have at our disposal, all these escape machines. We have, we have medications, we have drugs, we have devices. I mean, you know, mobile devices are the ultimate escape machines. We can just sort of flee into them and avoid un- unpleasant feelings, boredom, anxiety, everything. Um, what do you think? Do you think it's just that our, the baseline is higher because of these forces? You know,
0: I think it's the kind of thing that we habituate to, Right. Um, which makes it hard to say. Here's the connection between where the true baseline is, and here's where our perceptions are, and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I I don't know. Um, and I'd be interested if you did have something uh in answer to that. But one one thing I, I think I want to add in addition to 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 the that question is, I think the the observation for me comes in. Uh, when I take time off from work. And I, tr- I think I try to do this on a level that is more often than my peers because, you know, so the premise of the show is against habit. And a lot of it is, you know, kind of things that we've talked about is in like chasing the ultimate productivity system is something that we're really taught to do in a, in a lot of ways, but is a very flawed concept. And so one of the, I think, the most subversive things that you can do uh, assuming that your 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 life allows allows you to do it, is to step away from work for a little bit and to see, like, to actually take seriously engagement with other other aspects of life. And so, this is something that I've noticed when I step away from from work for you know more than a couple of days, enough to sort of like come off the 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 the, the you know workaholic mindset. And the th- almost defining aspect of that for me is I lose my sense of anxiety. And on the one hand, it's nice because then I have contentedness, like I mentioned earlier. And contentedness is is cool because you can just sit there and have it and you're pretty stoked about that, right? That's the definition of contentedness. But I find that I almost in a way, kind of like what we were saying with depression, it it's like, oh, I don't have to do anything. like, like, like the way that I think about it is that (laughs) you actually just can stop caring about your work. And the proof for this is that there's about 7 billion people on the planet, pretty much all of them except for you, who go about every minute of their lives without caring about what you do for work. (laughs) And you can actually very easily become one of those people. You can join them. Uh, and there's an, anxiety plays a key, key role in that. And so for me, when I notice the baseline level of anxiety, it's when I take it away and I'm like, Oh, this, I feel, I feel good. But I also feel like, wow, I really don't care if I ever go back to work. Maybe I'll just sit here on this beach and like do whatever. Uh, and, but yeah,
1: this is no, this is fast. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but it's just, I'm remembering when I was in grad school. And I was, and I had, I think, as I mentioned, I had kind of had this history as a meditator. I I was very, but I was afraid to meditate in grad school too much because I felt like I wouldn't get my work done. Oh
0: yeah. Mental health in grad school (laughs) that you don't, those are antithetical
1: concepts. (laughs) But right. Are we hooked on anxiety? And this is, I think a very fair people, you know, when I do get pushback on these ideas and I, I welcome pushback because. My only goal here is to say, we need to think about anxiety differently. Now let's talk. Right. (laughs) So I, I love this, the pushback and the pushback. I sometimes get on this is, Hey, listen, we are too addicted to anxiety. You know, we feel like we need it to get things done. And so we have to break that habit, right. To use the language of habits. And so this has all got to stop. And we just have to, you know, we have to break the cycle and we have to break the habit. We have, and, what I think is, there, I think the, the truth, truthful part of that is that if we do, because we're forced to be so future-oriented now, um, become so driven by anxiety that we no longer uh, feel, you know, that we don't have a flexible relationship with it, where, you know, sometimes we can stop working, right? We have to, you know, where we can say, hey, anxiety is in its place when I, when I need it, but and, and I'm, I'm learning to work with it. And right now I'm going to let it go. And I'm going to just take a break. Like that's a flexible relationship with anxiety. But then you go back to work. You're like, okay, I'm working, I'm working. Things are fine. And then you have this little ping of anxiety and you have enough flexibility that you can at least listen to it. And then you decide, okay, is this useful anxiety? Is this thing that I'm worrying about, is this fear that I have, is it helpful? Is it realistic? Does it prime me to a useful action? Or is it sort of just this sort of free-floating, you know, jitters, like caffeine jitters, (laughs) to use your uh, comparison. And that's when, again, but this is, this comes with practice and the very first step of just knowing that you can listen to anxiety, that sometimes it is useful, that it's not always a habit to break, because then you learn to tell the difference between anxiety being useful in your life and not being useful. And when it's not useful, that's when we do things like, you know, maybe we do have a therapist that we need to speak with because this is starting to become debilitating. Um, maybe we need to go for you know a two day hike, and just really disconnect because that's what I need to return to the present moment and not be on this hamster wheel of the future. If that's where anxiety is taking me, you know. So so that's definitely anxiety is not always helpful, but but the very first step we need to be able to take before we can decide that is to be curious and open to anxiety.
0: There's a word that has been occurring to me throughout this conversation and, and, you know, and thinking about your work and the word is channeling that anxiety. We get the benefits from anxiety when we begin to channel it in ways that are constructive and useful and meaningful. And the worst, so, uh, Talking about non-clinical non you know sort of pathologies, which you you mentioned you flagged, and I think we should get back to in a second. Setting those aside within the sort of standard range of anxiety, whatever that might be, um, the the bad outcomes are from when it's just there, and we don't harness the motivational power of it to do construct things like, cause we do like maybe our, our career goals are semi arbitrary. Maybe the world doesn't care about them. Maybe we are the only ones, but they're still important to us. That is still stuff that I want to do. And so that anxiety is playing a, uh, a crucial part in motivating me to do that. So it's about channeling it in the ways that are appropriate. It is about directing it and not having it be diffuse because then we're, you know, going back to some of the other emotions that we've talked about that give you, you know, kind of just uh, a general sense of of instability and negative affect, but don't point you towards any specific course of action. And so that concept of channeling, that anxiety can be beneficial when it is channeled appropriately, that seems really powerful to me.
1: I agree. That is a very powerful word. And I think it's just the right one, because there is, (laughs) you know, when you use the word channel, you've already started to believe that that an emotion that's so difficult and painful as anxiety is is capable of being channeled, that it's not a malfunction that needs to be fixed, that it's not a disease state that poisons us. So already by using the word channel, we've become sort of you know, it's the art, sort of now it's the art of living, like we're doing something with this, right? It's, uh, and by the way, artists get this concept, I think, because they're used to channeling their difficult feelings and experiences. Um, I think it's almost, we can think of ourselves as alchemists, you know, turning lead into gold. And I think when we use, those, when we have those ideas, instead of believing that we're broken, when we feel anxious, that that's, that's the key. And and let me, uh, because I've I've said it uh, parenthetically five times, I feel like, let me define the difference between anxiety and an anxiety disorder because I think it's really to this point of channeling. So you can have intense and frequent anxiety on a daily, weekly basis, but it does not mean that you're going to be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. The only time we can actually diagnose someone with an anxiety disorder is if the ways that they are coping with that anxiety with those difficult experiences is getting in the way of functioning. So if we have test anxiety for a kid going to school or or, or a student, or if we have some sort of a performance anxiety, and our way of coping with that anxiety is to just stop going to school, stop performing, uh, lose your job because you don't go to work anymore. It's it's the coping that is now getting in the way of living a, a full life that will get you the diagnosis. If you are having those experiences, if you're a kid, Going through a rough patch at school, and you're really worried about the tests that you have to take in its final season. And I have two kids, and they're, you know, especially my 13 year old. He's having finals in the next week or two. You know, having that 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 anxiety and fear it's 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 that's in the normal range. If he stopped wanting to go to school, if he got so nervous in the test that he failed all of his tests, even though he was capable of of, of doing the work, that is when it might be a disorder.
0: This is part of what I was trying to express in the uh, section about iatrogenics, in that the motivational component of anxiety remains constant, right? You're still having that um, that thing that says, ah, I, you got to do something about this. But if you, the thing that you do about it is like, oh, I'm going to stay home from school. I'm not going to engage in social opportunities. I'm going to, you know, sideline myself. And that is going to be, then you are, uh, that is going to be my strategy Feeling dealing with this. Then you're stuck in that loop. And um, that seems to me like the, the big, that's the direction that you don't want to go. There's some sort of red line there crossing over into pathology. But then there's, there's shades of... Uh, you know, sort of the, the how, how, you know, of negatively valenced out, outcomes, how significant uh, and how stark that, that the negative outcome is?
1: Yeah, because the functional analysis from an emo- from a functional emotion theory analysis, what anxiety is, is, it's the appraisal of future uncertainty, right? So that's, so every emotion has an appraisal and an action readiness tendency that defines it. Um, like, so for example, anger is the appraisal that there's a blocked goal, there's an obstacle to something you want. And anger creates the action readiness tendency to overcome that obstacle, right? Anxiety is the appraisal of future uncertainty. And the action readiness tendency is to do something, as you say, to avert the negative but make the positive come true, (laughs) right? To to not, you know, to avert disaster and make your dreams come true. That is the action readiness tendency of, of anxiety. And we just don't think about it that way. So, right, when we instead go into avoidant mode, that is literally the recipe for being, you know, it 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 dis it, it disrupts all of the beneficial motivational energy and action readiness that it, that is part and parcel of anxiety.
0: You set a line that I wrote down, and I plan to steal it and use it every day for the rest of my life. Um, oh,
1: please tell me which one, because I <laughs> stole a couple of your lines too. By the way, I like the bridge line. I'm going to steal that one and and, and cite you though. <laughs> I, I-
0: uh, I I would love that. Um, but the, the line you said is the hard work of being human. And that really resonates to me as kind of the tagline for what we're talking about of that, you know, you can't eliminate all of the bad stuff. And um, one of the implications of that concept for me is that oftentimes when there's something negative in our life, some sort of negative emotional response to something, our immediate reaction is, well, I have to do something to change that. I have to do something to fix that. I have to get a different relationship. I have to move to a different city. I have to go drop out of my degree or get a different one or something like that. And um, that's premised on this model. That's what it means to be human in its sort of apotheosis is not hard work. It is, you know, uh, frictionless productivity. It is, I get done all the things I need to get done without having to think about doing them. It is optimal habits. It's all of those things that are sort of promised to you in this pop psych business psychology literature about like, Oh, well, if you only had this, then good Lord, you'd really be cooking. But (laughs) there is no this there, right? It like, that is not a possible state of the world to find yourself in no matter what you do. And, uh, it's a
1: con, it's a con. the whole thing is a con. yeah, it's
0: impossible. And even if it's just a little bit misguided, you know, maybe if it's just a little bit misguided or a little bit, you know, sort of falsely premised, at the end of the day, what what it means to be human to successfully engage as a human being with your own humanity and the humanity of others is hard work. And that is something that we, I think are averse to in modern life, right? If you look at a lot of the technologies that we develop and, and the way things are sold and what we're trying to do, it's like, ah, if I can get to a state where I no longer have to put an effort to do this. Um, and I think this is a point that you you make several, several stages throughout the book about the, the role the effort plays. But I think this notion of having this core idea of the hard work of being human and anxiety, figuring out how to channel it, what to do with it, and what your relationship uh, can can be to it, and how to make friends with it—that uh, that's that's a key project within the hard work of being human.
1: I, I agree, and I, I think as you were speaking, I was thinking about you know the old um, you know Marxian phrase that uh, that religion is the opiate of the people. And and listen, you know, I'm not <laughs> I'm not to, I'm not defending that approach, except to say it feels as if this this cult of convenience and of comfort is the new opiate of the people, because we're just taught that it's a failure to be uncomfortable. And so take this drug, uh, get this product, uh, you know, get on this social media platform. And I, I think that what we have acquiesced to, mostly unintentionally, is to become these products. We are just a cog in the wheel of this hyper-consumerism right now, where the value of something is how much you as a uh you know uh, you know as as a product yourself if you're you know if you're say you know kids learn today that they're only as popular as the number of followers and likes and reshares they get right so we're either something to be consumed or we or we we value ourselves by what we are able to successfully consume and it's um and it's not to be a super philosophical about where we are right now i think it's just observation, that that, these are the messages. And I think a lot about kids because I am, uh, not only am I a parent, uh, but I am also a, a developmental psychologist by training. I actually, the book was at first meant to be a book about teen anxiety, because it, it it's something that all of us, whether or not you have a teen or, you know, everyone knows a teen and is probably concerned about a teen at, at this day, you know, at this moment in time. But, and, and now it's a book about, for everyone and about everyone, but I think what kids are facing right now in this moment in time and this and this hyper-consumeristic approach to I- identity formation and the cutting off of value systems and being able to find a sense of purpose. And this sort of also this sort of, oh, if you're not 100% happy, there's something wrong with you. I mean, it's a very tough mishmash of things right now for kids to navigate. I think they can do it. I actually am not one of those Gen X old people hating on the younger generation. I think that 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 young people today are amazing. I think they're reinventing sort of what it means to become an adult. I think it's not all successful, but I think a lot of it, I think they have a lot on their plate to contend with. I think that they're powerhouses. I really believe that, but we have not made it easy for them.
0: One of the things that I've, I've heard you talk about before and heard you push, push back against are claims about how social media are kind of intrinsically exacerbating our anxiety. And so in particular, there are these data that were made popular by Jonathan Haidt, and it essentially shows that there is this perceptible uptick in suicides among teenage girls, after the introduction of Instagram or, you know, essentially teenage girls who grow up with Instagram in this critical sort of junior high period, you know, you see this really alarming uptick and your argument against that, as I understand it is look, those trends are, are correlational and more than that, the data set that they come from are, it's not especially nuanced. And there are other studies. Um, One that I've heard you mention is that there's uh, one led by an Oxford team analyzing a data set of 300,000 young people that showed that screen use among uh, adolescents resulted in the same drop in well-being that uh, eating potatoes did.
1: (laughs) That's one of the great... It's one of the great reanalyses of an of a epidemiological data set.
0: <laughs> yeah, which I've always been very skeptical of potatoes myself. So I...
1: <laughs> oh, I'm half Irish. I love me, my potatoes. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, well... Um... You're drawn to them, though, right? You're drawn to them. One, one is drawn to them.
0: <laughs> I think that potatoes, if... Uh, probably, probably, probably should we should probably uh, talk about children's mental health rather than nature. Yeah, of we should
1: probably get off the potato because uh, we could we could do another <laughs> okay, hour no, no, and a half right. on yeah. potato.
0: We could do another Clearly. hour and a half. That's <laughs> All right, I'm a little disappointed that we didn't actually make that the premise oh, of this. My,
1: that'll be the next
0: one, Cody. Uh next, will be your next book is the the emotions of potatoes.
1: It's I really the difficult lo- emotions the of potatoes.
0: <laughs> um, your your point is that. It's not, it doesn't have to be the case that there's no relationship between social media and negative outcomes in, in young people, but that we need to spend less time sensationalize, sensationalizing that connection and more time investigating it, um, which, of course, is a position that has the merit of being correct, but doesn't <laughs> translate very well into eye-catching headlines, um, so, so yeah, that that's my understanding of your kind of position within within that debate. Pre-
1: precisely and perfectly put. That's right. Um, the, listen, I don't particularly think social media are good for us. I actually think they're designed um, without us in mind at all. They're designed to uh, you know to make money for these tech companies. So and that is clearly at the cost of human. Uh, kind of a sense of well-being because the whole, you know, of course, the whole model is that we have to keep people on screens as much as possible and clicking and buying and and that's not good for being a human being. So that's that's beyond debate. My, as you say, my my critique of these headline grabbing uh, findings, which are all mostly crap science and correlational, frankly, um, to draw you know that you cannot draw causal conclusions from them. Um, and I've pushed scientists on this. Gene Twenge is actually the one that has largely. Um, uh, actually documented some of this and and John Hayde uh, has been collaborating with her on some of these data sets. And when you ask them, say listen, you know why are you making causal claims? you know you can't you hear hear things like where there's smoke, there's fire now that's that's all well and good except the solution that you come up with when there's a smoke alarm going off and you don't and you don't investigate where the fire is is that you just decide, well, either the house is going to burn down, or you put it out, and there's nothing in between. There's no actually investigation of well, what caused the fire? Oh, wait a second. Are there people in the place of, in the house where there's fire? Oh, how could we prevent this fire from happening again? So the lack of nuance is actually costing us in terms of finding real solutions. So that really is the heart of my critique. It's not that I'm a lover of social media. I definitely do not defend these companies and and what they've they have uh, the way they've gone about things. I, I think when it comes to kids in particular. What I was talking about before with this uh, commoditization of a sense of self, of, this, of the gamification of conversation and self-expression, that these are some of the deeper problems, I think. Uh, and these are structural problems in how social media um, are designed. I think having constant social comparisons—you know, everyone is going to be more beautiful and thinner and stronger and everything that you know—and have better lives than you. And and it's the nature to you know of humans and young humans in particular to do social comparison. You know, that's not great. But I think it's these other aspects um, about what you know when we gain. There's a great um, book by C.T. Wynn on um, games as agency, games and the art of agency. He's a philosopher of games who I think is just absolutely brilliant. He did a great Ezra Klein interview that I just love. I I actually got his book and then read it on the beach. It's not really beach reading, it's philosophy, but it was great. And he really just argues in these elegant terms that, that, you know, that our social media lives, he argues a lot of things, but one of the things is that our social media lives, it's about what is, when you gamify something, you place value. You incentivize certain ways of being and communicating. And what's been incentivized is not great stuff for us human beings, especially kids. So that's sort of my view about, so what we need to do then is investigate that. And as parents, we need to be in it with our kids and understand the choices. What is being incentivized for them on social media? They're not going to go away, these screens. We can definitely limit, we can create better family habits. We can make our kids digital, we can empower them to be digital citizens who can make choices, but the screens are not going away. So we have a much harder job ahead of us. And, and that's, and that's really fundamental to my stance.
0: Tracy, you've been more than generous with your time. And uh, I've really enjoyed talking to you. And I want to end on a positive note here with one of the things that you said, which is that you think that, uh, you, well, you described Gen Z as a powerhouse. And I am also really optimistic about Gen Z being able to deal with the kinds of problems that we've been talking about, because I think that one of the defining characteristics of this younger generation is their flexibility to deal with emotional issues and to address emotional problems as real, concrete, solvable problems. Flexibility is a word that you've used multiple times throughout this, and that I think is also, it's, it's certainly one of the concepts that I'm very fascinated with, uh, a, a, again, with with habits being kind of the uh, ultimate unflexible mode of, of operation. Uh, I'm very interested in, in, in what uh, flexibility and, and, and curiosity can get for us. But I think one thing that this generation has that is substantively... Superior to the generations that have come before is a willingness and a toolkit for engaging in nuanced emotional issues, and this is one that I am not sure if uh, Gen X is 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 gonna you know, do a big part in solving. I'm not sure that Millennials is gonna do a big, <laughs> but I'm pretty confident this is the kind of thing that Gen Z could do a lot, a lot of um, a lot of positive work towards, and I I'm really excited to see how that develops.
1: Yeah, I would I would agree. I would have one cautionary note though, and I, I will end on a positive note, but the cautionary note is that um, we I think have taught Gen Z though that they, although they're having these great conversations and are emotionally aware, we have taught them that they're fragile. And I think that, you know, some of the best um emerging studies out there about parenting and what we need to. Teach our kids when it comes to difficult feelings like anxiety is that we have to help them believe that they are actually capable, that they're not, you know, that emotions are not dangerous, that actually they're capable of experiencing these difficult emotions and working through them rather than around it. One of the um, you know, one of the most exciting treatment approaches actually coming out now for. Kids who are diagnosed with anxiety disorders is not to give the kids therapy, but to teach the parents to stop trying to remove every source of anxiety in their lives. It's a it's a it's a, a research approach, uh, a research based clinical approach coming out of Yale Child Study Center called Space uh, Supportive Parenting for Anxious Children. And I think that when we think of Gen Z and the young, you know, and the young people and young adults now who are in that com- community of people. Let's keep on giving them the message that emotions are not going to hurt them. They have what it takes to deal with them, and they are much more um, gritty and resilient than they than we have told them heretofore.
0: <laughs> well, the only thing better than ending on a positive note is ending on a Jonathan Haidt headline. So. <laughs>
1: I, I know. I, I, him. <laughs> I thought the coddling of the American mind on many levels was great. I disagree with some too, but I think he's. I think that in that many of us who are speaking about this now, I think that is the final secret ingredient to, to, to get the message loud and clear that the kids can do it. They can do the messy work of being human.
0: I love that. Uh, Tracy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today.
1: Thank you, Cody. It's been a real pleasure.
0: That was my conversation with Tracy dennis Tawari. I hope you enjoyed it. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. If you want to give me feedback, you can go to survey.againsthabit.com. If you would like to subscribe to my Substack newsletter for more content, you can go straight to againsthabit.com. This episode was edited and produced by Emily Chen. I'm Cody Commerce, and thanks for listening to Against Habit.